As part of his work in global health, Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates has warned for years about the potential for an unchecked epidemic to kill millions of people around the world. Here he is back in 2017. An epidemic, either naturally caused or intentionally caused, is the most likely thing to cause, say, 10 million excess deaths. It's pretty surprising how little preparedness there is for it. A few weeks ago, as reports were emerging of the novel coronavirus increasingly reaching beyond China, Gates spoke about the issue at the American Association for the Advancement of Science annual meeting in Seattle. You know, this is a huge challenge. We've always known uh, that the potential for either a uh, naturally caused or intentionally caused pandemic is one of the few things that could disrupt health systems, economies, and cause more than 10 million excess deaths. But he also talked about potential long-term solutions, including this. The ability to create vaccines, there's a variety of techniques, RNA, DNA, and other techniques that are coming along. That should help. So what are DNA and RNA vaccines? How do they differ from the vaccines we have today? And how could they improve our response to global health challenges like the current coronavirus outbreak? On this episode of the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast, we go behind the scenes with two scientists working on these next generation vaccines to understand their potential. I'm GeekWire editor Todd Bishop. GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast is sponsored by Primera Blue Cross providing comprehensive health benefits and tailored services to approximately 2 million people, from individuals to Fortune 100 companies. Learn more about how Primera is innovating in healthcare at Primera.com innovation. We're talking about the future of vaccines on this episode of the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast. Of course, this is a timely topic given the current outbreak of the novel coronavirus known as COVID-19. Joining us are Dr. Deborah Fuller, professor of microbiology and a vaccinologist at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and Dr. Jesse Erasmus, postdoctoral scholar in Dr. Fuller's lab. He's a molecular virologist working on a new RNA vaccine and therapeutic technologies. It's great to have you both here. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So obviously, coronavirus is in the news, and that's one reason why we wanted to have you in this week. I'm curious, what have the past couple of weeks been like for the two of you? Because you live the world of vaccines day to day. The rest of the world is in your world now. What's it like as you see what's happening in the U.S., China, and other parts of the world right now? For a vaccinologist, the minute you see, you know, an outbreak like this, uh, we get to work. I mean, we just start thinking about right away about vaccines because vaccines are the one medical intervention that is the most effective against infections. It's, uh, you know, of all other medical interventions combined, antibiotics even, vaccines have saved more people uh, than any other. And so when you're a vaccinologist, you start to think about that right away. Is there a way that we can design a vaccine? Is there a way we can uh, take the technologies that we've developed in our lab and actually turn that into a vaccine? So we've been really monitoring what's going on and very um, 
you know, kind of working at a higher pace than usual. Well, I almost feel like I'm uh, doing a disservice to society by having you in here for an hour, but <laughs> we'll keep it brief, I guess. So how much of what you see out there in the news rings true to you? How much leaves you shaking your head based on perhaps some politicians that might have different interpretations of different possibilities in the world of vaccines? What percentage of what's out there is accurate that, that you see? I mean, from my perspective, there seems to be a good, um, I guess, message that's, that's being brought um, to the politicians from the experts. I think particularly nowadays, uh, communication is happening very rapidly on social media platforms. And scientists are particularly vocal on social media. And I think they're doing a very good job of communicating to the general public. Um, of course, um, there are some that are more stubborn and uh, don't uh, necessarily absorb some of that information as quickly. But, uh, but I, at least from my perspective, it seems that uh, communication is, is uh, happening pretty effectively right now. Yeah. In fact, on this topic, after we finished recording, Dr. Erasmus very politely corrected something that I had said in introducing the show. So I wanted to include that here to make sure to set the record straight. One thing I just want to point out, um, you mentioned that uh, this is an outbreak of a novel coronavirus known as COVID-19. COVID-19 actually refers to the disease that the virus SARS-CoV-2 causes when it infects. Got it. Okay. And so that's almost like... Yeah, that's just like uh, saying that HIV causes AIDS. It's You would say SARS-CoV-2 causes COVID-19. That's great. I love this. This is next level stuff. I mean, most people are just calling it coronavirus, which in and of itself is vague and inaccurate. And now we have the precise language to use. So thank you. So how unusual is what's happening right now in the world with this novel coronavirus? How extraordinary is this situation? I mean, this to me has always been not uh, an if, but when. I mean, because we have a lot of other viruses, and particularly the respiratory um, infections like influenza and uh, other sorts of coronaviruses have always, uh, in the back of our mind, been potential threats. And we have, in our lab, and other labs have been preparing for years, developing vaccine technologies uh, with the idea that there could be a future pandemic. And in particular, influenza is one of those that we have always kept our eye on. because, you know, we've had pandemics in the past, and um, you know, there's always a potential for another one. Um, and coronavirus, you know, has a lot of similarities to influenza. It's a respiratory disease. It's transmitted very much the same. It exhibits a lot of the same sorts of symptoms. But I think what's got a lot of people more scared now than, than say, for influenza is because we don't have a vaccine. We don't have any antivirals or ways of treating this. Um, when a virus first transmits from an animal to a human, there's no immunity in the population against it, and it's always going to be much worse than what it could be uh, You know, as it evolves and becomes endemic in the population. It generally settles out and becomes less threatening. Um, and so, you know, people are a little scared right now um, because there isn't any treatments. Um, but, uh, you know, and we're, we're watching that. I think that, the, as Jesse said, that the communication that uh, is getting out there is, is accurate. But there's also a lot we don't know. And I think um, a lot of the scientists that are putting out the information, they've been very good about acknowledging this is what we know and this is what we don't know. And we will know it. It just takes time to understand that. Scientists love to speculate as well, <laughs> but we just have to be sure to let the public know that this, you know, some statements are speculation, whereas others are backed by 
facts and data. What would be examples of things that have happened or been said over the last week or so that might have been speculation versus fact or data? I mean, I've been browsing Twitter every day. That's where there's a lot of this activity. And, um, you know, early on in the outbreak, there were some papers coming out suggesting origin in snakes. And these were published by, you know, scientists. They're not published. They were um, released on preprint servers online. Um, before peer review. But a lot of times, you know, people will be analyzing the genetic data. They'll see um, sequence that matches inserts from HIV or um, or similar to other snake. Uh, or they, No, they looked at codon usage, and they sh- showed that it was similar codon usage to, to snakes, and then they jumped to this conclusion that, oh, this virus jumped from snakes. Um, but a lot of the time, it's, it's a speculation that requires a lot of um, people need to just chill out and then uh, and let the data go through the peer review process before conclusions are really drawn. Yeah. So I want to dive into the nitty gritty of mm-hmm. what you each are doing mm-hmm. with the future of vaccines. But I want to give us a little bit of a vaccines 101 first, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. How do traditional vaccines work? And I guess I would include in this category the types of vaccines that I might get going to the Bartels drugs uh, every winter to, to get a flu shot. Yeah, yeah. Basically, there are um, essentially three types of vaccines that most of us will get. Uh, the most common one uh, is an inactivated a vaccine. Uh, so that's what I call the shake and bake vaccine. That's basically <laughs> you get the virus uh, or the pathogen, you kill it. And uh, usually you have some sort of form of inactivation. It could be chemical, it could be heat. And then you inject that and uh, you generate immune responses to that. So uh, so our flu vaccine uh, is an example of that. There's also live attenuated vaccines. That's also very common. And that's where you uh, have a pathogen and it's been mutated so that its growth is very much uh, slowed down. So when it gets injected, it doesn't cause disease. It just replicates a couple times, just enough to stimulate immune response, and then it, it you know, goes away. And so our measles vaccine is a good example of that one. The third type is, is a bit newer. It's called a recombinant protein vaccine, and that's where we identify a protein or a certain part of the uh, virus or uh, bacteria. We call that a subunit. So it could be, for example, uh, uh, you know, the spike protein from coronavirus is a subunit of the entire virus. And that's actually produced in cells. Uh, it could be insect cells, it could be bacteria cells or, or mammalian cells, and then purified. And then we're injected with that and we make an immune response against it. So an example of that is our hepatitis B vaccine. It's a subunit vaccine. So those are very different than the kinds of vaccines that we're currently developing. Yeah. So let's talk about your work. Is it all with Within the broad umbrella of DNA-based vaccine? It is, yeah. More broadly speaking, we call it nucleic acid vaccine. So it includes both the DNA as well as RNA vaccines. Got it. And so I remember from biology class, obviously DNA is our genetic code. Mm -hmm. RNA is almost like the messenger function that goes back and forth and communicates from the DNA. That's where my knowledge stops from mm-hmm. <laughs> high school and college biology. Mm-hmm. So fill me in with that basic understanding. Mm-hmm. Fill me in on what you do in your lab and, and what you're pursuing in terms of next generation vaccines. Right, right. So it's from messenger RNA, you go to protein. 
and messenger RNA ends up coding for that protein. And the protein, once it's produced, then that actually stimulates an immune response. So, so when we think about what we call RNA and DNA, it's a lot like recombinant protein vaccines, only it's a little bit different because what happens with recombinant protein vaccines is a protein's produced outside of the body in, say, a dish, and then purified and injected. And what happens with mRNA and DNA vaccines is that instead of purifying the protein, we actually take that coding material and we inject that directly into your own cells and it can go in, in your muscle cells. We have a way of putting it into your skin cells. And then your own cells will get that message and they'll start producing the protein that represents the part of the vaccine. So it's like your body is producing yeah. the vaccine yeah, versus you, just being injected with it. That's right. You're manufacturing your own vaccine in your body. And that has some really interesting advantages because when your own cells are producing the protein, it's going to present it in different ways, in two different ways. One way that it presents it is, is so that the body sees the protein in a way it makes antibodies. Okay, And antibodies are primary defense against infection. They block them from infecting our cells. The other thing it can do, because it's, it's expressing that protein in our own cells, it thinks we're infected, and it starts to stimulate a cellular immune response. So these are T cells that we have in our body, and these T cells can actually recognize infected cells and clear them. So if an antibody is unable to block an infection, then a T cell can come along and actually see an infected cell and get rid of it. Interesting. Okay, so it's the difference between stopping something from entering the cell versus actually getting it out of there. That's right. That's right. Most of our vaccines rely on the antibody. Um, what mRNA and DNA vaccines can do is trigger that other arm, a backup plan, in case the antibody fails to actually prevent the infection. It's like the difference between a vacuum cleaner and a Band-Aid. <laughs> that's probably a horrible analogy, but that's how I'm thinking of it. Exactly. So another advantage of nucleic acid vaccines is while your body is producing that protein, the body is also seeing this nucleic acid. And so you can think of the nucleic acid vaccine as, in my opinion, m actually more similar to the pathogen as opposed to a subunit recombinant protein vaccine. Got it. So the thing that you are focusing on in your lab, as you said earlier, is the nucleic acid vaccine. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. And what are the practical benefits of that approach of the nucleic acid vaccines? Is it more timely? Are you able to develop them more quickly? Obviously, if your body itself is producing the vaccine in the cells, then wow, that sounds like superpowers to me. Am I on the right track there? Yeah, you're totally on the right track. So when we when we first started working in nucleic acid vaccines, I've been working on them since the uh, early 90s, late 80s, when the DNA vaccines first came on as a concept. And we immediately saw their potential to address pandemics, to rapidly respond to emerging epidemics. And that's because with DNA-RNA vaccines, you only need the sequence of the pathogen. So once a pathogen has been sequenced, you can immediately take that genetic information, that coding, and put it immediately into a DNA or RNA vaccine, and it's ready to, to use, to immunize with. Whereas with all the other types of conventional vaccines, you now have the genetic material, but now you have to go through a production process and a purification process before you can actually inject that. Got it. Because as you said, in some cases, you're actually 
producing the pathogen, mm-hmm. killing it, and then using that to That's create right. the vaccine? Yeah, yeah. So as an example, like with flu, you know, when you have like in 2009, we had a pandemic and they sequenced the virus very quickly. But with our conventional approaches, like our current flu vaccine, it took nine months to produce doses of vaccine that you could get that in the population. Well, in nine months, that virus is going to be all over the place and there's going to be most of the morbidity and mortality associated with that virus happens in the first six months. So you got a vaccine coming nine months, it's too late, right? With DNA and RNA vaccines, they're predicted that once we've got that as a platform that can routinely go into people, it's going to take less than three months. Wow. But what about the current novel coronavirus outbreak? That's coming up next. This season of the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast is presented by Primera Blue Cross. At Primera, we talk about what we do all day. We offer access to healthcare. The card in the pocket allows people to go get access to healthcare. Dr. John Espinola is Executive Vice President of Healthcare Services for Primera Blue Cross. The challenge we have is that we know that the healthcare that they get access to doesn't work as well as it could. So we have a duty at Primera to make healthcare work better. That's our job. We give people access to healthcare, yet we give them access to something that's subpar. We have a moral and fiduciary obligation to do better. We're going to do it in partnership with those who may touch the moment of care. Providers, innovators, entrepreneurs, all of these are going to help us move in the direction we need to to make healthcare work better. We're bold enough to take the risk to try to do something that'll make a difference and learn from it and be better along the way. To find out more, visit Primera.com slash innovation. Okay, so let's talk about the current situation are you actively working on an approach that would use this mRNA, the nucleic acid approach, to combat coronavirus and COVID-19 in particular? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to let Jesse speak to that because Jesse just actually joined my lab not too long ago. And he joined just as the outbreak was coming. And in the, sometime in the middle of the night, he sends me an email saying, could we do this? And I looked at him like, you know, I think we could. So so Jesse has been heading the effort in my lab to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. So as Deb mentioned, um, all you need is a sequence, right? So some, the scientists in Wuhan, uh, as soon as they released the um, full genome sequence of um, the SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the virus, I was able to um, identify the spike protein, which is the principal target for for designing vaccines. And we base all of this on previous work that was done with a related virus called SARS-CoV or coronavirus. Um, and so based on work that was done for SARS, we saw what um, were the primary antigenic targets. And we were able to quickly take that sequence and synthesize it. And technologies for synthesizing DNA are rapidly advancing. And now we can synthesize DNA fragments encompassing the full spike protein in four to five business days. Um, And then we can clone that sequence into our RNA vector system. The thing you just said about business days struck me. Why why business days? (laughs) (laughs) Is is it like the post office? You're off on Sundays? Yeah, well, in this particular case, we were working with another company that has to produce the reagents to synthesize these materials. And and this particular company, Synthetic Genomics, they they operate on business days. If I can remember correctly, how long from the time that the sequence was that you put it in to the time that you first got it into mice and started immunizing for experiments. I I think it was just a matter 
or weeks. Yeah, I think um, we had data within 24 days, I think, as a total. There was a there was a period, though, where I was waning. We know the sequence came out, and, of course, we're debating, should we put time, should we put money into this? Is, is this going to blow over and we're not, you know, it's going to be a waste of time? Um, but I think by day nine, um, after the, the sequence was released, I think we started to get the idea that this was a serious um, threat, and so we started working on it at that point. Um, had we worked as soon as the sequence was released, we would have been nine days earlier. <laughs> so you've been testing this vaccine in mice? Correct. Mice infected with COVID-19? No. So for vaccines, if you think about the way you get a vaccine, you don't get a vaccine after you're infected. You get a vaccine to what they call prophylactically protect you from future infection. So here we're just taking healthy mice and we're immunizing them with our RNA vaccine and just measuring their immune response. Are you exposing them to COVID-19 after you've immunized them? Not at the moment, but we do have plans to do that in the near future. But there's a lot of paperwork, a lot of regulations we have to go through to be able to work with the virus. Bureaucracy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. right now the, the SARS-CoV-2 is what we call by safety level three. And so you have to work it in very tight containment and you require a lot of regulatory approvals to do that. So mice are not natural, naturally infected with coronavirus, so we have to kind of work with a sort of modified viruses or modified um, mice, actually, to be able to infect mice. So some of it is like some of the things that we look at in terms of vaccines is when you think about designing vaccine, you need to know a few things. And one is what kind of immune response do you need to get protection? And we know from, you know, the SARS that came out in 2003, we learned a lot from that, that it's antibody. And so we know that if we start to stimulate antibody responses in mice, we're probably on a really good track with uh, inducing the right type of immune response. Mice are the first benchmark, and then you have other benchmarks that you have to have to take the, the study forward into preclinical and then clinical studies and, and the like. So I know you have to be careful as mm-hmm. scientists mm-hmm. not to make predictions and that sort of thing. But I'm curious, does the work that you're doing now in the lab have implications for some stage of the current COVID-19 outbreak? What's the best way for you to explain the the practical implications of the work you're doing now for what we're all experiencing in the world with this? Yeah, yeah, I think I can explain that two ways. I think that, you know, you know, given that we had to start from scratch, we're probably, you know, before the first, and this is not just our lab that's working on, but other labs working on, on COVID-19 vaccines. The prediction is that you will have a vaccine ready to actually use in humans in at least in about a year. It's probably going to take that long just because of all the regulatory tests they have to go through. So a year from now, where are we going to be in terms of the epidemic? Is it going to be worse? Is it going to have gone away? The reality is we don't know. Um, and so, you know, we have to continue down the, the track of and being prepared. You know, um, we try to prepare as a, as a community in many ways, preparing for any sort of outbreak. And one way to prepare is to actually develop a vaccine. So uh, coronaviruses are actually, we have coronaviruses already endemic in the population that cause the common cold. Um, we don't know when they got in humans. Um, they probably jumped from animals to humans at some point, just like this one did. And it probably happened when they did, they probably caused sort of an outbreak that we're like we're seeing right now. So by next year, we might see it, coronaviruses become 
this one becomes uh, endemic in the population, it causes symptoms more like the common cold. Or it may be more like the flu where it's seasonal, you know, because respiratory viruses tend to uh, transmit better in cold weather. And so we might see it kind of go away a little bit in the summer. And everybody goes, yay, it's gone away. And then it might come back again in the fall. And so either way, we have to continue down this track of developing a vaccine because I think that even if this particular virus goes away, there's going to be one in the future. And so one of the ways that we're looking at our technology is not just to design a vaccine specific for this virus, but could we make a universal vaccine against any sort of coronavirus that might come up in the future? But you said earlier that this was so much faster than traditional vaccines. So that got me thinking, well, maybe like next week you could start testing this in humans. Am I being completely unrealistic on that? Yeah, yeah. So so it's sort of one of these uh, situations where right now there is no licensed DNA or RNA vaccine for human use. Oh. And so when I say that eventually could get to the point of being ready in three months, what you have to have is sort of the whole system set up from, uh, you know, from bench, from sequence all the way to human trials so that you're just popping plug and play right into a system. We're still in the process of developing that system. And but once it's developed, theoretically, it could happen in three months that we could have a vaccine ready. You know, I think that the other thing that we could start thinking about, you know, if you think about SARS in 2003, what happened with that is we, you know, we vaccinologists got to work then and started working on, you know, because we thought that could be a big outbreak. And then it just kind of, you know, chilled and went away. And the funding dries up with that, right? So we have to shelve all of our, our work. Uh, and, you know, maybe we can start thinking about these things differently, that we should maybe always have some support and funding uh, for emergency preparation of future pandemics, uh, where instead of having to start all over from the beginning and take a long time to get to that point, we would have these things, you know, already uh, on the shelf that pull down and then pick up from there and move more quickly forward. Perhaps that could be one positive outcome of what's happening right now. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. That's what my hope is, is that, you know, this will be a wake up call uh, that says that, you know, we need to have this uh, in place, um, this system so that, you know, labs and, and clinics and the like have a system in place that if there's another outbreak, we have this system, this plug and play system going and we can quickly uh, respond to uh, to meet an outbreak and, and control it more quickly. We see this this, this pattern. It's, it's pretty frequent, right? So um, when I was doing my PhD in Galveston, there was this large chikungunya outbreak. Many people maybe don't remember chikungunya because it was overshadowed by the Ebola outbreak. But yeah, then there was Ebola. And then a year after that, there was Zika. And then this year, there's SARS coronavirus 2. And then, you know, there's probably going to be something else next year. And so you know, every time something like this happens, I mean, my my career goal is like Debs. You know, I want to be um, I want to be involved in the development of uh, platform technology that can be um, rapidly applied to emerging disease pandemics. And and so every time something like this happens, the only thoughts going through my mind are how can we use this opportunity to really um, demonstrate that we have something that works and. And the problem is you need a lot of money to get these things um, all the way through into humans. But as Deb was saying, if we can demonstrate just for the platform, doesn't matter what the disease is, if we can demonstrate for the platform um, immunogenicity and efficacy in humans, then the next uh, episode is going to be that much quicker, that much easier. Um, and right now the goal is just to 
to get us to that stage. Paint for me a picture of what the ideal world would be if the research that you and others are doing in this field proves effective, you have the funding you need, however many years in the future, and you see that outbreak of something like COVID-19 where there is no vaccine, what happens? Yeah, so let's say disease X, that's what mm-hmm. they call it. There you disease go. X comes out, uh, and we have successfully, you know, through um, because of this coronavirus, you know, we've become prepared. Now we have a system in place where we have uh, taken our platform all the way through clinical trials and have marketed a vaccine. And so all of those pieces are now in place, including the uh, basic, uh, you know, cassettes that we need to just very quickly pop a sequence in, into. Take the sequence of the pathogen, uh, the path- pop it into the, your system. Correct. And create a vaccine. That's right. That's right. We know how to deliver it. We know what dose works. We know all these things because we've learned all that from, from each. And every any new disease X that comes, we can very quickly do that and do a couple of preclinical. So you always have to test in animals first to make sure it works and then rapidly move that into humans. And a lot of the safety kind of tests that need to be done, you know, in terms of looking for reactogenicity and various sorts of things would have been done already. And so a lot of, not to say those aren't still done with every new pathogen, but they're just a lot more confidence that, you know, um, we can move more quickly uh, into getting this into humans. So are we talking like days, weeks in the ideal world? I mean, what is feasible? And again, I realize you're scientists and I'm asking you to speculate, but like, what would be your ideal scenario? To halt a pandemic, uh, you need need protective immunity in a population. I mean, ideally months, I think, would be acceptable. Days, I don't think are necessary, but months. uh, But the problem is going to be scaling to many, many doses. So the longer you wait, the more doses you're going to need to produce. Um, so I would I would say I think months. I don't know what you think. Yeah, of. I well, yeah, I would say months. And then added to that is that when we think about as a pandemic starts to emerge or an epidemic starts to emerge, if we you know generally you can see it start in specific areas like Wuhan, um, and and the reality is that even as you begin to scale up the vaccine, you don't, it, you're not looking to necessarily have to vaccinate the entire population the earlier that you have an intervention, the quicker you can you can contain that infection. And so there's a there's a concept out there, it's called ring vaccination, right? Where you can identify, say, an infected pool of, of people and you immunize the people who are closest to them, the first responders, the medical teams, the family members. And if you build a wall of immunity around where that outbreak is taking place and you actually the virus has nowhere to go, you end up stopping it. And it's been used in the past. And in fact in in, in two thousand nine it was used to some extent. You know, when they first got the first doses of vaccine for the 2009 H1N1, there wasn't enough for everybody to get vaccinated. So they preferentially vaccinated people closest to those who are more vulnerable, like the elderly and the young. And that's a sort of a form of ring vaccination. So you build up immunity in the population and you can eventually control an epidemic without having to vaccinate everybody. So what are the next steps in your work uh, right now as they relate to COVID-19, Jesse? Uh, next steps are to evaluate immunogenicity in a larger animal model um, and something different from mice, and preferably an animal model that um, mimics the disease. And so uh, next steps are to collaborate with um, some scientists in, at NIH um, to look at 
testing the efficacy of the vaccine in non-human primates, and we um, would like to evaluate whether the immune responses that we're measuring in mice and that we hope to measure in non-human primates will actually protect those non-human primates from disease upon what we call challenge. We challenge the monkeys with uh, SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. And big picture, what are the next steps to be able to get DNA-based platforms for the creation of vaccines into the world in a way that they can create vaccines for humans? Yeah, I think I think that the next steps are really, um, there are actually DNA and RNA vaccines currently in phase one, two, and three human clinical trials. So phase three is the last step that you take. And I think that probably within the next year or two, you're going to see some of the first nucleic acid vaccines licensed for human use. And once that happens, and you've got basically that fourth vaccine concept out there, you know, that uh, that could start not only to uh, address new diseases like we see this one, but replace some of the vaccines that we have out there that may not, uh, may be more costly, they may not be um, as effective uh, and, and the like. So um, so it's coming. I think that uh, it's the future. The nucleic acid vaccines are the future. You're gonna start to see them licensed, not just for COVID-19, but other diseases as well. And, uh, and that's gonna open up the world for um, really this sort of, uh, ability to more rapidly respond to emerging epidemics. The other thing that um, we should probably mention is uh, speed to immunity. Um, so a lot of, like you, you've taken some vaccines probably in your childhood and through your adult life where you have to take a prime vaccine and then a year later you get a boost and then you take a third vaccine yeah. you know, of that same vaccine series. For these types of pandemics, that's not going to work. You need something that um, you give someone ideally a single shot um, and you protect that individual, you know, within two weeks after that single shot. Um, so that's another thing that we want to focus on. And, and we think that the technologies that we're developing in Deb's lab are going to enable that single shot, although we still have to demonstrate that. So there's a lot that we have to do. We have, a, you know, hypotheses. We have a lot of ideas, but um, there's a lot of work that has to be done to demonstrate that. What would be the big picture takeaways that you would want people to know about your work as it relates to something immediate like COVID-19, but also the future of vaccination and the prevention of these types of pandemics? Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, the, the, the um, uh, messenger RNA-based vaccine that Jesse's developing is just one uh, aspect of, you know, we have uh, DNA vaccines as well, and they, uh, they offer different, to some extent, distinct types of immunity. So as Jesse was talking about, you have to pick the right technology for the right disease. So you need to know, okay, for in the case of pandemic, you need to induce a response immediately. And so the technology that Jesse's working on is, is the right choice for that. But there's other types of diseases, like for example, we're working on, um, we're trying to leverage the ability of nucleic acid vaccines to induce that cellular immunity. And we know that cellular immunity is really important for clearing infections. So we're looking at actually using some of our technologies as therapeutic vaccines for chronic HIV, for chronic hepatitis B. We believe that that you know, technology could be used to uh, reduce viral replication and people are already chronically infected. We're looking at for cancer vaccines. So, uh, you know, I think it's sort of, you know, it sounds like it's a one size fit all, but I actually, you know, believe that flash forward 50 years from now, you're going to see that nucleic acid vaccines are going to be in almost in any type of disease and potentially replacing a lot of our, our vaccines that may not be as optimal right now. Definitely 
pay attention to the space, you know, the nucleic acid vaccine space, because it's it has applications not only in infectious disease, but also in cancer. Um, and, and we're anticipating a lot of breakthroughs in that field as well. Um, and if there's any in the audience that, you know, have a lot of money and they want to invest, uh, <laughs> I recommend investing in nucleic acid technologies. <laughs> yeah, Bill Gates has been outspoken on this. I heard him at the um, American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting, the AAAS meeting, talk about coronavirus in particular, and he came out with his steps. How much does what you do align with his vision as you've heard it. Yeah, you know, I think he's right spot on there, you know, and, you know, I love to hear that because, you know, uh, for many, many years where people didn't believe in this sort of thing, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I have to say that when we first started with DNA vaccines in the late 1980s, everybody thought it was going to be the best thing in the world. You know, we had Nobel laureates getting up and saying, this is the vaccines of the future. And then all of a sudden, in the mid-90s, when we first started getting, um, it was at the time, DNA vaccines into clinical trials, they failed one after another. Mm. And everybody and their cousin got out of the field of nucleic acid vaccines at that point. And there were a few of us who stayed with it. You know, we just kept believing that this was really a a technology for the future and that you just had to get back to the lab and start working and figure out why it didn't work as well in humans. And we fixed a lot of those issues. Uh, and we've now coming out with even better technologies like the one that Jesse's working on. And we're now, you know, hitting the ground running again. It's got to be the coolest profession in the world right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I, would say, I would say, too, for, you know, for folks who really worried about this as a pandemic, I have a lot of confidence that we'll come up with a vaccine, that we'll have a very effective vaccine for COVID-19. In some respects, it's a bit to me, a little bit like low-hanging fruit because we know exactly what what protein we need to include in our vaccine. We know what kind of immune responses we need to induce, and we have technologies capable of doing that. So it's just it's really a matter of time of getting through the steps that are required to to do all the testing and validation. But uh, I think we can feel pretty confident we'll have a vaccine very soon. And when you say that, do you mean a nucleic acid vaccine, a DNA vaccine? Yeah, that would. I actually think that would probably be the most, that, that, that holds the most promise, but there are certainly other vaccine technologies out there that are being developed for COVID-19 as well. And it could come out of your lab. It, they could, yeah. This, yeah, uh, we think that we've got the best one out there. We know that there's other groups working on nucleic acid vaccines, but we think ours has particular advantages that, uh, including the potential to induce immunity within a couple weeks after a single shot. Uh, not all nucleic acid vaccine technologies have that ability right now, so we think we're one half step ahead in that regard. Well, Dr. Deborah Fuller and Dr. Jesse Erasmus, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. And on behalf of everybody out there, I just say good luck to you. Thank you. (laughs) And I hope you get all the funding you need. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Thank Thank you. Dr. Deborah Fuller is a professor of microbiology and a vaccinologist at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Dr. Jesse Erasmus is a molecular virologist working on new RNA vaccine and therapeutic technologies. See the show notes on this podcast for links to follow their work and see geekwire.com for ongoing coverage of the novel coronavirus outbreak in Washington state and its impact on the technology industry. Thanks for listening to the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast. You can find more episodes at geekwire.com slash health tech or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Thanks to our sponsor of Health Tech Season 4, 
Primera Blue Cross. You can find out more about their work at Primera.com slash innovation. I'm GeekWire editor Todd Bishop. We'll be back soon with another episode of Health Tech.